recap on today's show, Hurricane Ian barreling towards Florida, and it looks like it's going to be a really bad one. We'll get an update from Reggie Cicchini in Tampa. The volunteer underwater recovery team in our province is absolutely stretched to the limit. And why on earth are Chinese police operating covertly in Canada? All right. Uh, let's get into this situation developing uh, off the east coast of the United States. Well, it's not there yet, but it's going to be soon. Uh, Hurricane Ian is what we're talking about, slammed into Cuba overnight. They are anticipating once it gets to Florida, uh, which should happen probably um, early tomorrow, maybe, um, it's going to be a really, really bad storm. Uh, Global News' Reggie Cicchini is in Tampa, which is expected to be one of the uh, hardest hit areas of Florida, and he joins us now. Reggie, thanks for uh, joining us today. I appreciate your time. Good morning. So Ian has already roared into Cuba. That happened overnight, and uh, we're starting to see just how devastating this storm is, and it's only gaining in strength. But tell us about what happened in Cuba. Yeah, I mean, look, this this uh, the storm system came up uh, came through Cuba through the late hours last night through the very early hours of this morning. Power has been knocked out. There has been torrential rains uh, through uh, a, a good section of the western portion of the island. But what is more important here, Shay, is that as the storm kind of moved over and crossed across, uh, it went across Cuba, it didn't um, kind of downgrade the structure of the yeah, storm. It yeah. allowed it to maintain that strong status, and therefore, when it came back out over the Gulf, it didn't have to rejuvenate. Generate, and that is part of the problem now as we look towards Florida. Yeah, and what's uh, going I mean, I, there's all kinds of warnings, evacuation efforts, uh, all kinds of preparations being made in Florida. They're expecting this is going to be bad. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, Florida hasn't had direct landfall from a hurricane since 2018 with Hurricane Michael, and that was up in Mexico Beach, up in the less populated panhandle of Florida. This storm, after a couple of days of, uh, of, of inconsistent models, really now puts it towards the heart of Tampa, where we are. And Tampa hasn't seen a hurricane in 104 years, and it is one of the most uh, prone areas around the United States to storm surge. And when this storm comes, they're uh, anticipating more than 150, maybe 200 millimeters of rain, Jeez. but a 10 feet, uh, 10 foot or three meter storm surge. And that really could prove catastrophic, not only across uh, parts of Tampa, but through uh, Clearwater, through St. Petersburg. And these floodwaters could actually find themselves going through Orlando in the middle of the state and then going to the east side of the state all the way through to Jacksonville. Boy, and you know, that's the thing a lot of people say, well, it's not even a category five, but that's wind speed. And that's not what they're worried about with this storm. It's like you said, it's the rain and the storm surge that could absolutely just swamp it. Yeah, absolutely. And look, meteorologists will say this. Don't focus on the category number because sometimes it's just the difference between a kilometer or a couple of miles an hour that will differentiate between a three and a four and a four and a five. It's the water that really yeah. becomes problematic here. And that really is the concern here in Tampa. Uh, and that's why there is though, there are those mandatory evacuations that you mentioned. We're in zone A right now, which is under mandatory evacuation. About 11, 12% of the uh, gas stations in Tampa have run out of fuel. Uh, and a lot of the, uh, the uh, senior homes and the hospitals have actually started to clear out floors to evacuate uh, to put evacuations in place to get people to a more inland or at least a higher land section uh, of the state they're, they're they're really taking this seriously because a it doesn't happen very often but when it does it's dangerous yeah what's the timeline when is this storm expected to arrive in florida reggie 
According to the latest models, and look, there's still a bit of a cone yeah. when it comes to where Ian is going. It could, you know, be to the south and to the east of Tampa. It could be more to the north and west heading towards that big bend or the big curve. Uh, they're expecting this late tomorrow night into early Thursday morning, which is why there's still time, according to the governor, for people to get out of their homes. Worth pointing out, there's no legal ramifications for anyone who is uh, who stays in a, a zone A. But the problem is, according to the governor, help will not come to those people that do not evacuate when they are told to. So this is going to start tomorrow. And then according to the models, it will park itself over Florida for 36, maybe 48 hours. And that is where the problems lie with the water coming through Tampa Bay, continuing to fall from the sky. Uh, and that's where those flooding concerns really come into play. Yeah, big, big concerns. Reggie, thank you so much for the update. Appreciate it. interesting conversation here and it's been bouncing around in the news for well a few months now um, and it focuses on the underwater search team in our province and basically these are the people that get the call in well unfortunately in drowning situations for body recoveries um, they also get called out by police occasionally to help with recovering evidence all kinds of things it's a really um, it's a fascinating field of, well, it's not work, and that's part of the point, but when it comes to the cost and who pays for it, that's why it's been in the news uh, for, like I say, more than a few weeks now. Uh, so let's find out exactly what the situation is. We're going to chat with Luke Jevney, who is the president of the Central Alberta Rescue Diving Society. Luke, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. You're very welcome, Shay. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Okay, uh, I'm fascinated by this. I find it really, really interesting. So let's just start with the kind of work that you do. What is the typical call? Is there a typical call for your team? Uh, typically, it is most drowning victims, uh, but we do also, uh, as well, evidence recovery and vehicle recoveries as well. Okay, so is it primarily police that you're dealing with then? Yeah, and unfortunately, we need to be um, called out by a law enforcement group. Um, when it is a drowning victim, um, we will do corporate um, jobs as well, too, and that helps pay some of the bills for us. What What's it like? I mean, just tell us about when you get the call, what goes into getting to the site, and then what goes into the actual recovery work? It's a lot of work, Shay. It's, um, when we get a call, it's a, we have to put it out to our, our, all our members. And um, they have to talk to their bosses, get time off work since we're all volunteers. And then we have to travel across the province to wherever wherever the call out is, unfortunately. And last year, we put on over 34,000 kilometers driving across the province. So it's not just a one-day recovery for us. It does take multiple days by the time it starts to finish. And like how many, I mean, how many calls in a typical year? Like how many calls did you have this year? Well, so this year, it was a slower year, and, and we're grateful for that. We had nine calls uh, this year since July 24th. Okay. Uh, la- last year, we did have 19 calls. It oh, was wow. a very busy year for us last year. What's it like diving in Alberta? I mean, uh, we, we don't have great lakes in much of this province. They're pretty murky. They're pretty yucky on the bottom. What's it like? <clears throat> it, it, it's definitely not the Caribbean. We're not down <laughs> there looking for fish. It's a... Uh, Every body of water in Alberta is very different. Um, we face uh, blackout conditions. Uh, everything we do is done by feel. We don't know what's actually at the bottom of the lakes. We run sonar equipment um, first before we will dive to get a picture of the landscape down below. And that just informs us as divers as to what's down there. And that helps mitigate the the risks because entanglements are our number one fear. We don't know if there's bar bars down there or logs or jams or whatever. 
So we have to take all those precautions. Tell me about the team. Like, How many people? And like you say, they're all volunteers, right? Yep, all volunteers. They all have full-time jobs. Um, they come from all walks of life, from farmers to um, my, myself. I'm a carpenter. We have a couple law enforcement, uh, mechanics, all, all, all different types of people. And right now we have about 20 people on the books, and we need minimum four people to go to a call-out. Okay. So it, it, it does get challenging, um, especially being province-wide. We have members in Edson and Cold Lake and Airdrie and Calgary. I Myself, I'm out of Millet, so we try to get the people that are closest to the call to come. Gotcha. That makes sense. And and there's a ton of equipment, right? And like you say, in some cases, some some pretty high-tech equipment that you guys need for all of these uh, efforts. There, there's a ton of equipment, and it's all very, very expensive, unfortunately. Okay, now that brings us to the next point here. Uh, you, you're, you're doing this work for police forces largely, right? They're asking you to recover evidence, recover bodies, vehicles, whatever. They don't pay you? Uh, so it's a cost recovery basis as of right now. Uh, so we do get reimbursed for our travel expenses, our hotels, meals, gas, all that stuff. Okay. Unfortunately, uh, we don't get compensated for lost wages, um, all that extra stuff. It's all volunteer. And again, like I said, just a, a one-day recovery ends up being three, four, five days, depending. And if it's a five-day recovery, it can be eight, nine, ten days of lost wages and all that stuff. And RCMP, from my understanding, have dive teams pretty much everywhere else in the country. I think Alberta is one of two provinces that doesn't have a designated RCMP dive team, and it's, they say well, it's because contracting works better for us here. Well, it's, no kidding. It sounds like it's it's a lot cheaper. I mean, how are, are we very, very different from the rest of the country in this regard? Well, I, I've never understood it, actually. Um, and it, this is not an RCMP issue. I, I want sure, to make yeah. that clear. Um, this, this is a provincial government issue that I, I, is what I feel. The RCMP, we have a great working relationship with them, and I, I appreciate them using us. Um, but it, it's, I don't understand why there isn't a provincial dive team in Alberta. Now, what would that look like? Would that be a full-time, you're paid, you're on the team, on-call kind of a situation? Well, that, you know, it is, it's those conversations that we have to have within the team. But myself, I would like to have, um, after, after this year, we kind of ran into a snag. So we got called out to White Court um, a few months ago. And this is when the media started noticing us. But unfortunately, we couldn't get there for a, a couple of days because we were in Kananaskis on another recovery. And then we had to talk to our bosses and employers to get time off to go to White Court. And on the way to White Court, we actually got deployed to Peace River immediately after. And so it, it, it is tough. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, it, it, it's it's a lot to ask. And like you say, there's going to be busy times and there's going to be slower times. But overall, yep. like, what's the cost to, to your organization? Do you, I mean, in terms of the money that you cost, aside from the reimbursement for costs that you get from the from the provincial uh, from the police forces, what does it cost you uh, as an organization to operate? Well, it, it costs us a lot of money, and, and the numbers aren't. I don't even have the numbers. It, it's you know, if if you want to factor in the lost wages and all this, it'd sure. be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. What? How do you? How do you? How do you? How do you cover that? I mean, what, you guys aren't paying out of pocket. What is it? Are you getting donations? Is it driven that way? Um, unfortunately, most of it is paid out of pocket as of right now. We do get donations. Like we're, we are an incorporated nonprofit charity, so we we do get donations. We've had about twelve thousand dollars worth of donations so far, and we're very thankful for that. 
But it, it, the donations and the fundraising takes a, even more time from us. And we're already stretched so thin between our work and or not being able to go to work in the call-outs. Yeah. To add the fundraising into it is just a whole other ballgame. And it's, it's hard for us to be able to commit to that. Yeah, I hear you. Absolutely. So, so what are you asking for? What would you like to see? Where, what's the next step that you want to take as an organization here? Well, to me, the, the next step, I'd love to see, have conversations with the government. I have talked to a few members from the government, and they don't know which jurisdiction we'd fall under. But I would, I'd love to hear from them and say, how can we work this together? And how can we work together to make this work? I hope that they understand that Albertans do need, the, do see the need. And actually, it's now become a demand. But I, I would love to have conversations and get this funded. And uh, a stable operational funding. Yeah, I, I got to ask you, Luke. I mean, the situation, like you say, I mean, it's time away from work. It's lost wages. It's a, it sounds like a real pain. Why do you do it? Is there a chance that you might stop doing it? Um, you know what? It, it, I, I really don't ever want to stop doing it. We, we do the recovery of drowning victims. It, it's our passion, and it's based in compassion for the families who are going through their worst nightmare. And I cannot imagine never having a loved one returned to me. So uh, we, do, we do this out of love. But does it get to a point where it's like, I, I just can't do it? I'd like to do it, but I can't? It's just, does it just doesn't make sense anymore? It's getting to that point now. It's Financially, I'm, I'm almost at that point where I can't do it anymore. I've worked, I work probably five months of the year to be able to do this. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm getting a text from some of our listeners saying, hey, hey, who do we contact? Who, who, who should we get a hold of to give these guys a little bit of support? And I guess it'd be your MLA, right? Yeah, the MLAs or ministers, um, maybe reach out to the Minister of Justice or, or the medical examiner. I, I don't, again, it's, I don't know who it falls under. And uh, the, the officials I have talked to still don't know. I've heard rumors of municipal affairs. I know the municipal affairs, um, what was his name? Scott Johnson mentioned in another news article that there is grants for us. But again, a grant is, is, is a small amount for us, and it's not stable or sustainable. Right, funding. yeah. We'd like to have that line item on the provincial government every year. Yeah, like a, a set-up uh, framework that you can rely on and sort of bank on going forward and know what your situation is going to be. 100%. Yeah, yeah makes sense. Uh, Luke, well, thank you for doing the work. Uh, it's the kind of work I don't think a lot of people would be able to do, and uh, we'll see where this goes. We'll follow up and uh, see if there's any updates down the road. It's troubling. I don't know if there's any other way to put it. Uh, troubling information that came out of a new report. It's a study by a group called Safeguard Defenders. This is a European agency, uh, and they have reported that police, Chinese police have set up in more than 50, more than 50 different locations in countries all around the world, including right here in Canada. So to find out exactly what's going on, we're going to chat with Charles Burton, who is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and a former counselor at the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. We've had him on the show before. It's always a delight. Charles, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Good to speak with you again. Okay, so this report, uh, tell us what's going on here. Chinese police officials operating in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not... Chinese police officials operating in Canada is not new news. You know, they, we've had uh, cases in the past where it's been discovered that Chinese police have entered our country on false documentation. You know, they deceive our 
embassy in Beijing to giving them a visa by claiming that they are um, businessmen and they get someone in Canada who's in on this to invite them for ostensibly business purposes. And then once they get here, they look for Chinese people that they want to return to China. So, you know, this would be um, corrupt officials who have relocated to Canada and bought real estate and so on, trying to keep a step ahead of the anti-corruption campaign or political factionalism. Or political dissidents who, you know, saw the writing on the wall yep. and were able to get out. Or, um, you know, real criminals like members of triad gangs who are involved in serious criminal activity. So they come here and they meet with them and try and convince them to willingly render themselves back to China, typically by threatening their families. You know, I know of a case of a political dissident who returned to China and was subject to imprisonment after they threatened to take away his mother's house. So, you know, this has been going on. What's new is that the Chinese authorities are now establishing actual offices, you know, permanent offices in our country to uh, facilitate this kind of activity. Now, does this happen? I mean, this seems very unusual to me. I can imagine some instances where governments will form a partnership and allow for this kind of activity. But is this just the Chinese arbitrarily opening up police offices in Canada? Covertly, yeah. I mean, we have an RCMP officer stationed at the Canadian Embassy in Beijing who negotiates with the police. And, you know, um, maybe there's a crime that's occurred in Canada where our RCMP would like to to get information back in China to develop the case and have the evidence. And the procedure is, of course, that you contact the police in the country that you want to do the investigation, and they accompany you every step of the way. Right. Well, of course, in the case of the Chinese police, they don't want an RCMP officer, you know, hanging over their their shoulders as they're engaged in in activities which are not consistent with our with our norms of policing. You know, I mean, we don't have extradition with China for good reason. They they torture people in interrogation. They they give you the death penalty at the drop of a hat, and they don't believe in you know. Ju- um, due process of yeah. law and rules of evidence, you know. So, so the Chinese don't have an extradition Canada. They have people they want to get back. They want to seize their assets, you, you know, which benefits a lot of elements in China if you seize someone's assets. Um, and uh, they're going to do it their way. And apparently, we are going to let them do it. You know, we we seem to be tolerating the increase in this activity in our country, which just seems completely nuts to me yeah that that's the question canada just seems to be okay with this is there any pushback any intervention or do we just seem to be letting this happen turning a blind eye to it well you know the people who are harassed by these um agents coming out of these facilities you know such as canadian uh of tibetan origin or canadians of Uyghur origin or hong kong democracy activists have been trying to get the government to take this seriously and to you know and to arrest some of these agents who are engaged in these gross violations of the canadian charter of rights and freedoms uh and to expel chinese diplomats who are running these operations out of the embassy and consulates around the country including in alberta um but uh they, they get completely stonewalled and nothing, nothing has happened. You know, Amnesty International has been calling for the government to set up a unit to deal with this activity since 2017. And we get a lot of lip service and how they think it's very important to protect uh, Canadians in Canada and so on. But when it comes down to actually 
making the Chinese accountable for this activity, we don't seem to have done anything. And, of course, it emboldens them to do more. And now setting up these permanent offices in Canada is, uh, you know, is sort of an inevitable uh, extension. And Charles, it seems every time you and I talk, it's the same thing. It's China just completely and utterly ignoring international law or tradition or norms or and Canada just sort of looking the other way or, or, or not pushing back or just seeming to put up with it. It seems to be just yet another example of this. Yeah, I mean, the, the issue really is that, you know, I tell the truth about these things. Uh, you and your listeners get it. Uh, but the government just uh, stonewalls us. You know, we're not getting any action on Chinese espionage or or now this police activity outrage or any of the other sort of malign activities. Yeah, I mean, we, we've talked about doing here. we've talked about them interfering with um, uh, universities, getting you know infiltrating themselves into uh, the education system, into the political system, into businesses. I mean, they've got their fingers in everything, Charles. Yeah, this is the problem, and it's it's an increasing problem. You know, it, it happens slowly and gradually, and it builds up. And when when is our government going to decide that, you know, they can sacrifice the interests of Canadian businesses who don't want to make the Chinese mad in any way for fear of yeah. endangering their contracts and deciding that Canadian security and sovereignty counts for something and that it is under threat? What could we do? I mean, realistically speaking, what kind of uh, action could we take? Could we, could we force them to close down these offices? Could we kick them out? I mean, what, what kind of action do we have available? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we should be kicking out people that are going around menacing people in Canada. You know, the, the state has the monopoly on violence in our country. You know, if anyone is going to be engaging in violence against uh, um, people in Canada, regardless of whether they you know, are guilty of, of whatever crimes or corruption or or political distance, uh, that should be done by us. And so, you know, this is just completely unacceptable activity for foreigners to come into our country and intimidate people who are resident here. So, of course, we should, ex we should, um, you know, if those people are are Canadians uh, and 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 or even just residents of Canada, they should be subject to the full force of the law for their violations of of our law. And if they are diplomats, then uh, we ought to tell them, uh, sorry, you're not welcome here any longer. Go back to Beijing. And this report says. Simple. Yeah, and this report, it, it's not just Canada, it's happening in other countries too, so uh, what are they doing? Are, are you seeing pushback in other locations? No, I think that the Chinese operate wherever they can get away with it. Right, you know, yeah. and and I think that's that's the story here. If you look at the where those fifty four offices that they've identified, I mean, presumably there are a lot more. I mean, if they're if they're in three offices in Toronto, they got to have some in uh, Vancouver and Calgary and so on. That just stands to reason. So you, you know, if you look at those governments, they're all governments that have the same thing. They they've got strong business interests that have been intimidated by the Chinese authorities to lobby governments not to make waves and you know if this just involves a few people of Chinese ethnic background we should just let that go unbelievable Charles uh, I, you know what it's not unbelievable we've talked about this several <laughs> times frustrating but not unbelievable unfortunately yeah so true so truly Charles thank you so much for your time I really do appreciate you joining us once again thanks for listening today to hear any of our other interviews you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast and if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.